Our scripture reading for today is Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That was great, Sarah. Thanks for being up there a while. Um, John Piper spent 15 weeks in this chapter. Uh, Tim Keller says it's one of the hardest chapters in the Bible to understand. And I have about 30-ish minutes with you this morning. So that's just the pastor setting the bar low, okay? Very low, managing your expectations. Um, there's going to be a lot of things you won't understand about this chapter. A lot of things I'm still wrestling through, don't understand this week after studying it, the last couple weeks actually. But that being said, there's one thing very clear about this chapter. The reason why it's here. And it's to remind that church, and it's to remind us today this, there is no room for arrogance in the body of Christ, but rather the gospel ought to produce a humble posture toward all. Um, in the Jane Eyre novel, Emma, one of the characters, Harriet Smith, is kind of an unremarkable 17-year-old woman who becomes Emma's protege, who she's trying to help become the matchmaker for Harriet. <clears throat> and Harriet's quite smitten by this young farmer. And this young farmer actually comes to her and approaches her and asks for a hand in marriage, but Emma convinces Harriet that she can do far better than this young farmer. And so even though she's quite taken by this farmer, she passes on the request. And she begins to think about this other guy, Mr. Elton. He's a very, he's the village vicar, a handsome and agreeable man who's quite sought after in social circles. But Mr. Elton considers himself much above Harriet and is indifferent to her and in turn sets his eyes on Emma. And Emma spurns him because she thinks she's in a little better place than Mr. Elton. Listen, if you want to know the rest of the story, you can watch the movie, read the book, or talk to my daughter who helped me understand it. Um, but this story of Emma is marked by one common thread, arrogance and pride. It's an attitude of, I am better than you. It's an attitude of, I belong here, but I'm not quite sure you belong here. Have you ever felt that in a community? Maybe in your class at school, or maybe in an extracurricular activity, or maybe in your workplace, or maybe even in a church, in a faith community. Arrogance and pride. Well, Paul, as he writes the church in Rome, it's filled with Gentile and Jewish Christians. And he addresses arrogance and pride head on. And there's three things he offers us this morning in this, in this long chapter to undercut that arrogance and that pride and to create really a humble posture toward all. He gives us a, a historical perspective, a horticultural perspective, and then a worship perspective. So let me pray, and we'll get in, into each of those three perspectives. Let's pray. Father, we, um, yeah, we come before you this morning as we are. And Lord, we pray now that you would do what only your word and your spirit can do, and that is to shine light on our hearts. Lord, there are a lot of places where um, we are not aware of our attitudes toward others. 
And so, Lord, we pray today that you would do a work in such a way that you'd help us to respond to your gospel and be a community that is humble towards all. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this historical perspective, um, the, the arrogance in the church at Rome, it was really divided between Jews and Gentiles. Um, Gentiles are just non-Jews. Gen- Jews were, of course, the ethnic community that God called out. And the occasion for this kind of pride was simply this. The vast majority of the Jews of the day had rejected the gospel. And there's a tragic irony to this. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. There's a tragic irony because the gospel is actually the climax of the story of Israel. They're actually kind of the origin story of Jesus, you might say. If you know the Marvel comic series, it's the origin story. They're, it's where the whole promise begins. The promise of Abraham in Genesis 12 and the culmination of all these promises comes upon to Jesus. He's the climax. And yet, when Jesus comes on the scene, and as the good news goes out, the vast majority of the Jews at the time had rejected Jesus and this gospel. And what had happened is, Many Gentiles, non-Jews, had come in to receive this gospel. And in fact, in that day, in Rome, the Gentiles outnumbered the Jews. And what had happened in the church, as you read through the letter, is there was a growing smugness and arrogance. It was actually creating divisions in the church. We'll see it later on in the fall when we get to chapters 14 and 15. But there was an arrogance and a pride And so Paul is wanting to undercut that arrogance and that pride. And to undercut it, one of the first things Paul does is to look at God's relationship to the Jews in the past, in the present, and in the future. And the question he's trying to answer in this entire chapter is the first one he begins with in verse 1. And look at what he says. I ask then, has God rejected his people? In other words, the Jews. And Paul's real quick, by no means. So here's the deal. We're going to do a brief overview of this entire chapter in relationship to God's relationship to the Jews. We're going to begin with the past. Paul begins in verses 1 to 10. He gives two reasons to show clearly that God has not rejected his people. And therefore, there's no room for arrogance or pride. The second part of verse 1, he says this, By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, I'm example number one. I'm a Jew. If God rejected the Jews, I wouldn't be here worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. But secondly, Paul begins to talk about this, what we'll just call this Elijah principle. In verses 2 to 5, Paul recounts the story of Elijah, who was a prophet at the time when almost the entire nation of Israel had forsaken God and gone after this other god, Baal. And at one point, Elijah says this, am I the only one left? I'm the only one left, God. I'm the only one left that actually worships you. And God's response, we see it in verse 4, he quotes it from the story. He says this, God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then in verse 5, Paul says, So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul is reminding them that though even in his day, there's a vast majority of the Jews who have rejected the gospel, God has nonetheless preserved a remnant by grace. A remnant, it's a smaller portion. Just as he did in that day. 
Paul is saying there's always going to be a faithful remnant. As one commentator put it this way, it's not that there's always a set of good, decent people who will believe, but rather it all depends on the grace of God. He goes on in verses 7 to 10 to deal with, honestly, what we worked through in the past couple weeks, God's sovereignty and salvation and their responsibility. But he wants us to know right away in the past, this is how God has always worked with his people. He he has not rejected them. He is faithful to them. He's called a remnant by grace. The next section, Paul kind of zooms out. Think of Google Maps when you you kind of zoom out and you get the worldwide perspective. This is what Paul's doing. He's taking a 30,000-foot approach. And Paul begins to talk about God's work of salvation in the people of Israel. And he kind of shows basically three phases. And the first phase is in, we'll see in verses 11 and 12. Listen to what it says. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, what Paul is saying here, the vast majority of the Jews, when they rejected the gospel, it actually opened a door to the non-Jews to hear the gospel. Let me explain. If you go back to the book of Acts, the, the account of the early church, when the gospel goes forward, what happens is they go to the synagogue. It's the, it's the Jewish place of worship, and they preach the gospel. And what happens is some Jews receive it, and some Jews reject it and actually become hostile. They become so hostile that those who bring the message actually go then to the Gentiles. And then when, when everything's said and done, you have a multi-ethnic community who worship Jesus. You have Gentiles and you have Jews. And Keller makes this observation that if the gospel had been received by the whole synagogue, then Christianity, this hope of the gospel, would have only been seen as a renewal movement within Judaism. In other words, not a multicultural movement in which God was welcoming all nations to be his people. So Paul's looking out. He's saying, hey, the very fact that the Jews rejected it, the vast majority, has actually opened a door for other nations to see the gospel. But secondly, the second stage is to make Israel jealous. This is interesting. Verse 14, Paul's talking about his ministry. It's it's interesting. If you go back to the story of of Paul, he was actually called to minister to the Gentiles, not the Jews. And this is what he says. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and somehow save some of them. Well, what does it mean to make them jealous? In fact, is it okay to be jealous? Listen to what John Stott writes. He says this, not all envy is tainted with selfishness because it is not always either a grudging discontent or a sinful covetousness. At base, envy is the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. And whether envy is good or evil depends on the nature of that something, of the something desires and on whether one has any right to its possession. So what Paul's saying there is, excuse me, what Stott's saying there is this, Do the Jews have any right to this salvation? Absolutely they do. Should they desire this rescue from their sin and restoration of the people of God? Absolutely they should. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying this. He's saying, listen, as I begin to preach the gospel and Gentiles come in, 
I want Jews who have rejected to look on this new congregation, this multicultural movement, and I want them to see the beauty of their lives. I want them to see how they love God, how they love their neighbor, and I want them to realize that this is the fulfillment of what God's been promising all along. And because of their lives, I want them, I want that, their lives together, to communicate such value and beauty that they would give the gospel a hearing yet again. That's the second stage. The third stage is the future. In the future, it's, it, the, the, the difference in while the envy of Israel only wins some of them in stage two, Paul sees a time to come in which there'll be a vast majority, a greater riches and acceptance among the Jews. We see this in, at the end of Romans 11, 25 to 26. This is what Paul writes. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The all Israel there. Paul doesn't explain it. He doesn't define it. But what Paul is saying there is, there's going to be a greater acceptance at some point down the way in which a large number of Jews will come in to join the non-Jews and be this multicultural family. Now, that's a lot of an overview over the entire chapter. But here's what you need to know. Here's Paul's main point. There is no room for arrogance in the body of Christ because God has not rejected his people Israel. And Paul hasn't either. And therefore, neither should they. Now let me just pause here for a moment. Whenever you come to the scriptures, it can feel a little bit like we're very distant from that situation, right? But let me submit to you, there are some other ways in our current situation that pride and arrogance can be at work in the body of Christ. Let me, let me give you one application. I think it's very, it's right in our grill today. There's an article entitled The Six Ways Evangelicalism is Fracturing. And I, I posted it in the RC, um, or excuse me, the sermon discussion on Slack channel, but this is what they write. The last few years have highlighted major differences in how Americans have processed Colin Kaepernick, George Floyd, COVID, Trump, Biden, in January 6th. And the article basically lays out six types of evangelicals. And the short version of explaining it is simply saying that the fault lines have made the church compared to something like a rubber band that is less elastic. In other words, if you read the article and you find yourself as a number one in this category, to be in a church with the number four is almost unheard of because you, you approach these issues and these situations so differently. Let me put this in real time. Recently, I had a conversation with a friend, and we are talking about a mutual friend we had. And we talked about the relationship that this person had towards the church. They had begun going to the church, but they had stopped going because they had looked at some of the social media posts of some of the people at that church. And they were filled with political rhetoric supporting Trump. That's why she stopped going. Listen, we have lived through a season where race, masks, politics have divided our nation. 
And here's the point. The fault lines are here too. And here's the question for us, because this is the question for them. Can we keep the gospel at the center? Or will we let something else drive Redeemer City? Or will you let something else drive your life? There is a part where I'm really concerned for the American church. And I put us in there. Because I'm concerned that we are more formed by our social media than we are by the scriptures. We are more formed by our politics than we are by Jesus. When Paul says that he desires to make the Jews jealous, he's talking about the kind of community that loves God and loves neighbor in such a way the people look in and they say, how do they do that? Think about in that day, the multicultural family that they were beginning to see happen in Rome. How could those people come together and love one another and worship God? Do you, do you recognize how incredible that statement was? Yet Paul was hoping and he was praying and he was working so this church in Rome might reflect the beauty of a people that, though very different, would be a family because God had called them by grace. And that creates humility and no arrogance and no pride. Listen, here, here's my challenge for us. This is, um, listen, will we have patience, honestly, to listen to one another in these issues? I'm not saying put this under the rug. We don't do that as a family. But, but will we listen as we engage with politics, as we engage with racial issues? Like, will we listen first? Or, in our arrogance and pride, will we do what we see all over the place is simply to make a caricature of someone else? You see, and the difference is what's at the center. Is the gospel shaping us? I can make an argument that the last 10 chapters has been all about laying the foundation of the gospel so that, that might be what frames this community and what shapes this community and not the noise out there. We need it more than ever. It's going to take work. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of patience and a lot of listening and a lot of prayer and a reliance on God's Spirit. But that is what he calls us to. There is no room for arrogance or pride in the body of Christ, but a humility towards all. That's the historical perspective. Paul turns the corner to the horticultural perspective. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says this, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Paul is talking about 
the Gentiles being a wild olive shoot and the Jews being this olive tree. And I'm not a horticulturalist, don't have a whole lot, but let me give you one quote from William Ramsey. He's a a Scottish New Testament scholar. He says this, in exceptional circumstances, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree which is ceasing to bear fruit by crafting in a shoot of a wild olive so that the sap of the tree ennobles or energizes the wild shoot and the tree now now again begins to bear fruit. What Paul is saying is the non-Jews have been grafted into the olive tree. But here's the point. The Jews are the root of that tree. They support the whole thing. Therefore, there's no room for the wild olive branch to have any pride towards the actual olive tree. In fact, this vision is quite remarkable because it actually shows the unity of God's people. There is only one olive tree whose roots are firmly planted and whose branches include both Jews and Gentiles. And this tree is the true people of God, those in Christ. And here's what's remarkable. The turn of the ages in God's story of salvation, the coming of Christ has brought an important development. The object of one's faith becomes clear and the ethnic makeup of that people has changed radically. There's a great turn. And then Paul warns them in verses 19 through 21. Paul says this, Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, the Jews who didn't believe were broken off because they didn't put their trust in Christ. But now the arrogance that the Gentiles have is making them susceptible to the same issue unless they continue in fear and faith. I remember years ago, we were moving to Madison to be a part of a church planning movement. And some individuals would would say this to me, you want to move there? to this sort of godless city, that was kind of their view. And I wanted to just say right back to them, who do you think you are? Like really, who do you think you are? Do you think you were all nice and cleaned up when Christ found you? And then I found myself having to repent as well because I was angry at them. (laughs) I was all of a sudden better than them, right? Um, Listen to Paul's antidote for the arrogance that he gives them. It's verse 22. Paul says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Listen, we need an either or, excuse me, we cannot have an either or theology. We need a both and. Mary Holst, she's an author, she writes about if you go to a fair, oftentimes, you know, you'll have a cartoonist, you know, paint you a picture of yourself. And it's a caricature, right? Like they'll, they'll take the, they'll, they'll, they'll make your freckles stand out or the curve of your nose or your big teeth and they'll accentuate it. And the final image looks a little bit like you, but it's oddly distorted. And Paul here is addressing caricatures of God, which we all have. Distortions. 
And Paul is calling them not to an either or, but to a both and view of God. Listen, if you view God only as severe, you'll only view him as a judge. You'll be frightened by him and scared of him. You can't be trusted. He's out to get you. And the best you can do is try to live as best as you can while assuming he's displeased with you. That is a distortion. If you view God only as good, you'll make him out to be a nice little grandpa in the sky that pats you on the back. It can lead you to not taking sin seriously and making your relationship with him casual. If you're going to fight pride and presumption, you need a both and. You need the goodness and severity. We've seen the goodness of God throughout Romans. We've seen it all over the place. The grace of God to meet needy sinners to the death and resurrection of his son. Is that not good? To reconcile, to offer forgiveness of sins, to restore you, to make you a son, a daughter. Like there's, it's all over the place. Yet we've also seen the severity of God. We've seen people reject this news and therefore God reject them. We've seen it in this chapter. J.I. Packer writes this, If we do not let the goodness of God draw us to God in gratitude and respond in love, we have only ourselves to blame when God turns against us. Paul is calling them, are their pride and arrogance and their complacency to fear. That's the end of verse 20, to fear. Fear is not this... Being scared, it's this, as one author would put it, it's a combination of holy respect and glowing love. It's a fear that doesn't drive you away from God, but makes you actually run toward Him. A life that does not take God casually. A life not with God on the margins, but a life marked by a deep commitment to Him and a deep commitment to His people. A life that does not choose what to submit to him and what not to submit to him, but a life that puts it all on the table and says, I'm yours, for that is exactly what he has done for you. You don't get to pick and choose with him. A life that is surprised by the fact that God would welcome you. Surprised. Can you believe it? And yet warmed, warmed by the promise that even on your worst days, he really does love you. Paul is trying to, in a sense, shake them out of their complacency, of their casualness, of their arrogance and their pride. He's trying to shake us out of this either or to a both and so we might walk with him humbly. And lastly, to undercut our pride and our arrogance, he gives us a worship perspective. Listen, when, when we walk in arrogance and pride, the world becomes very small and we become very big. We walk with a posture of, I deserve this. But notice what happens with Paul. After he's talking and written about all of this work of redemption, all this history of salvation, it leads him to the spot of self-forgetfulness. It leads him to a doxology. That's how he closes this out. Let me read for you how Eugene Peterson rewrites this section 
in his message translation. Give me long. Here's what it says. Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God? This deep, deep wisdom? It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has, has to ask for his advice? Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory, always praise. Yes, yes, yes. You know, um, on Wednesday, I was driving my son to his Frisbee camp, and we had just watched the night before uh, the Bucks pull it out, right? And we were listening to a podcast, and the podcast was talking about how that game that Giannis played was potentially, like he would say, arguably one of the best NBA final playoffs game of all time by an individual. And I couldn't help myself but say, I was talking to Sam, I'm like, Sam, do you, do you realize you got to watch that? But what am, what am I doing? It's, it's what we all do when we see something beautiful or amazing or remarkable. We respond in praise. This is what Paul's doing. Listen, if you've seen anything in what God has done for you in the personal work of Christ and the mercies he's had in your life, Paul is saying, here's the response. Anything beautiful, you respond in worship and praise. That's the, another antidote to arrogance and pride is to be caught up in who God is. It's to remind ourselves of our place in this great work of salvation, of what God is up to. It's getting our eyes off of ourselves, onto the great God who has procured a rich salvation through faith in him, through his son's life, death, and resurrection. It's a pretty easy application. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Let's do it now. Father, we commit to you our hearts, our lives, and we pray that this gospel would humble us, that there would not be an area in our life where we feel better than, where we feel like we belong, but rather we would be stunned by your grace, amazed by your mercy, and that it might lead to a humility towards all. Lord, would you please help us in this season to love and serve all and listen, even those who are very different, even those who view the world very different. Give us a humility. Give us a steadfastness, for you have been patient with us. And Lord, would you continue to keep our eyes upward on a God who's still at work today, working out this salvation. We trust and pray in the midst of our lives as well. Amen.